0: The Old Testament, crusty, ancient, irrelevant, musty, takes up two-thirds of the Bible that we can ignore. for as one renowned American megachurch pastor I read of in the last two weeks has made some absolutely shocking comments along the lines of what I just said. I keep telling myself, and that's why I'm not giving his name, that there has to be more to the story. There's got to be something missing. God in heaven, help us if there is not. Dr. Walter Kaiser, professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages, was one of my profs at Trinity. Some of you had the great privilege of hearing him. He spoke here one time at our church many years ago. And as he would, he had just such a different sense of humor. And boy, you need a sense of humor if you're teaching the Old Testament to a bunch of seminarians. Actually, to anybody for that matter. And he would, all, whenever he would say the word, the Old Testament, he would say, the Old Testament. Well, Dr. Kaiser is way, way up there in years now. Settled into his own little farm in Wisconsin, I believe. And uh, he and I had an email exchange just uh, in the last few months. I didn't know if he was even still alive. But I just wrote him to tell him how much of an impact he had on my life and in teaching the Old Testament in particular. We are in First Samuel chapter 25. We dare not ignore belittle or diminish the old testament in any way, shape, or form. What a sacrilege and how how diminished is our theology and our understanding of God's word if we do that. I hope you will see that illustrated this morning. We're in First Samuel chapter twenty five. It's a new Sam uh it's the new Samuel. It's a new chapter and it begins in verse 1, then Samuel died. That's always a great way to start a story. Kids, gather around. I want to tell you a little bedtime story. Samuel died. Okay. And all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Three main characters have emerged, of course, not counting the Lord God Almighty in this book since we've been in it, and those three characters are Samuel, Saul, and David. And Samuel, as the high priest, has been the mouthpiece of God to the masses and to David and to Saul. Back when Saul was crowned the first king over God's people, that whole situation does not occur if... God does not initiate it, which of course he did, and he initiates it through his mouthpiece, the prophet Samuel. The many highs and the lows between Saul and David that we've already read about and will continue to read about. The many highs and lows between David and the Philistines, between Saul and the Philistines, between Saul and Jonathan, and David and Jonathan. They do not come about but for the Lord giving Samuel marching orders to deliver to David and to Saul with the divine imprimatur. That's the stamp of approval on all of it. The importance of the person, Samuel, can't be overstated. And with his name being mentioned 123 times, it seemed odd to me that the report of his passing in this passage, in this text, is akin to barely a footnote in the history of all that's gone on. We've not heard the end of Samuel, though, but he is now quite literally history in verse 1. And perhaps the abruptness of Samuel's demise in light of his visible importance in the affairs of God's people while he was alive only perhaps underscores the very servant nature of all who love the Lord and that any of us, that any of us really are just a cog in a much grander and far more complex mechanism which is under the oversight of God, of heaven and earth. Verse 2 begins an entirely new pericope, but this does not diminish Samuel's faithfulness nor his importance. It does heighten the status and the stature of the creator of the universe and his involvement in the affairs of mankind. We should be encouraged by this. The election of 2016... The confirmation of the latest Supreme Court justice only days ago are two of the most profound current illustrations of the Lord telling us in extreme ways the Lord is in charge. But we need to be active in the midterm elections and praying that they are equally as compelling. So Samuel is dead to begin with. (laughs) tickled the dickens out of me. Okay, see, I could tell who's literally astute. There were about two more than there were in this service in the first service. So the rest of you just, you missed it. There it goes. Now there was a man in Mayon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Did I say Carmel? I'm going to probably do that you know if you've been out to Carmel in California and all of, I just when I see it it 's pronounced Carmel, but it 's Carmel, and that 's no taffy that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep inserted in the text in a parenthesis there um, is valuable information that we need, but because it read awkwardly with the insertion of parentheses where it was, I continue the thought, and now I add the parenthetical comment now the man 's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calabite. Whoever the author is at this point, and it's obviously not Samuel because Samuel is deceased, the author sets up the narrative with a character sketch of two people who are the focus of this particular vignette. You have the man whose name is Nabal. He was very rich. He was, to say the least, a cantankerous sort. He was full of himself. And as we're going to learn in a few more verses, nobody could even talk sense to the guy. And just to put frosting on the cake of what a stellar person this is, we are told that Nabal was a worthless man. I don't expect us to remember back uh, to the second chapter in this book when we were talking about Eli's sons who were also noted in the Inspired, Infallible, Narrative, Authoritative Word of God that they too were worthless fellows. And what we determined back in chapter 2 was that Eli's sons who, if you remember, they really were nasty, disgusting kinds of guys they earned the same label as Nabal <laughs> sorry, that just dawned on me <laughs> the same label as Nabal, you are bad, as worthless men because they didn't know the Lord. But it's not like they didn't know the Lord because they hadn't had opportunity. It wasn't that they were ignorant of him. They didn't know the Lord because they knew him and they rejected him outright. And so we have the man Nabal, whose name means directly from the Hebrew of the word Nabal, the fool. And you have to wonder... What kind of parents would lay such a name on their newborn child? Well, I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know what? That that really doesn't seem likely. So what seems to be more likely, and I can't prove this, obviously, but what seems to be more likely is that Nabal became this person's nickname. And we all know what a nickname is, right? If you went through the military, you may very well have had a nickname by one of your drill sergeants or whatever they call the instructors in the training in the other branches of the military. When I was in ba- basic training, uh, yeah, the drill sergeants kind of prided themselves on giving nicknames to individuals who stood out, sometimes just by virtue of things they had absolutely no control over, like their physical appearance. There was one guy who was really a nice guy, but honestly, he did have the flattest absolutely just flattest face that I've ever seen in my life and like perfectly round. And the drill sergeants called him pan face. I mean, like, what well, hey, it's the army, right? Okay. I had to keep from laughing because you don't want to laugh at the drill sergeants because they'd only do those kinds of things to try and, you know, get your goat and all of that stuff, breaking you down and blah, blah, blah. And of course there was more on the pan face, but I can't share that with you. And then one day they said, okay, where, where's my T-Rex guy? And I went, here I am. You know, But no, that, that really didn't happen. I didn't gain that nickname until many, many years later here. Now, workplace bosses frequently obtain nicknames, right? And they re- usually uh, gain those nicknames by virtue of reputation, either for good or for bad. Here at Faith, of course, <laughs> bad pshaw. You know, sometimes I walk in in the morning and Pastor Ben will say, Hey, good morning, Pastor Master. Or Pastor Ben will say, There's Pastor Awesome. (laughs) Well, that's what I hear in my mind. (laughs) But in truth, I do have a nickname. I'm not sure what it tells us, but when I walk through and I start heading down the court, and I pass through the two open doors that you first come to, meaning Dory and Janet's office, I get, good morning, pumpkin. So, I don't know. Do I have a pumpkin head? I, I'm not sure. So nicknames may tell us something about the person, especially when it's an unflattering one like Nabal, which leads me to speculate that Nabal was his prenomen doesn't seem likely. Is what? Okay, in all honesty, I had to look that one up myself. The prenomen is the birth name that a parent actually gives their child as opposed to any number of nicknames or what have you. My prenomen is William, okay? The only time anybody calls me William is when it's spam or a spam phone call, or it's my mother, and I am in trouble still at any rate, I just can't imagine now that this this you know Husband and wife, they've got their brand new little baby boy, and they go, here's our adorable little fool. Isn't that cute? Oh, here's his little sister, Egghead. Yeah, she'll outgrow it. She'll outgrow that. So it just seems more likely that he derived this by earned reputation. For again, the last thing this inspired character sketch offers is noting to us that Nabal was a Calebite. For all these many times, 40 plus times, reading through the scriptures, meaning I've read this passage, never dawned on me to stop and even question. I just assumed that it was a familial connection to someone named Caleb, to some kind of minor clan, which in fact it is. But this isn't just a useless detail. It is, in fact, telling us something much more about the low character of Nabal's person, because the word Calebite is used only here in the entire Bible. It is never used before or after. And while it does relate, in fact, to a familial connection, Caleb, remember, was the hero, one of the heroes at Jericho with Joshua So it does, there is that connection there, but in the way the author is using it here and that it stands out by itself as the only time it's used is because the root word for Caleb is dog. And in the culture of the day, the lowest animal form of creation, I don't understand this, was in fact a dog. And so to act dog-like was a grave insult. You may remember, in fact, that the Pharisees used to pray in public, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like the Gentiles or the women or a dog. So it's a really uh, standout, disgusting term, and it was used here as an epithet to relate to Nabal to the lowest form of life. Now, I'm for my own peace of mind and all, I'm imagining that this was a scribal error in the original text and that they actually meant to use the Hebrew root for cat. But I could be wrong. It's just me, okay? That You don't have to buy that. I suggest you don't, but if you want. So at any rate, calling him a Calebite or a dog is again just accentuating the despicable nature of this guy. So this is what we know up front about Nabal, who stands now in stark contrast to his lovely wife, Abigail, whose name means, my father is joy, and expressly in the form, my heavenly father is joy. So Abigail, as opposed to Nabal, is the bright one. Abigail is the balanced one. She's the beautiful one. She's the one to whom Nabal owes any and all success that he's had. And as the narrative continues, what we see is Nabal very faithfully acting out the very meaning of his name. And we see Abigail living up to hers. So it came about that while he was shearing sheep in Carmel, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. The time here is a time of great celebration. The time of shearing the feet, uh, the sheep, was basically akin to harvest time. It was akin to, uh, say, in a manufacturing plant when you were given uh, uh, these big contracts and you finally got them done and could deliver them, which meant you get paid, as does everybody who was involved. So it was a very, in fact, a festival kind of occasion. Meaning that of all the times of the year, this this wonderful character Nabal should be in a good mood if at any time at all. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life, peace to you, and peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have, and be excellent to each other. How many of you stayed up and watched the Red Sox last night? David continues. Now I've heard that you have shearers, and now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything at all in the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please, give whatever you find at your hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. Now, because we obviously are not acquainted with the traditions of the ancient Near East, it frequently handicaps us in better understanding a particular text that we're reading in historical narratives. But I think we are familiar with some kind of concept of paying for protection, You know, like the mafia, right? Hey, you guys need protection. Not that I know of. Trust me, you need protection. And you can pay them to protect you from them. But that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, we're talking about just basically praying, you know, praying and paying for a bodyguard or something like that. It was commonplace. But now see, in the ancient Near East, such people as Nabal, who had thousands, as, as we already read, in his flocks of varying animals, all that needed to be grazed and everything, sometimes far away from, from where the direct oversight of Nabal was, he would send them out with his attendants and servants and the shepherds and all of that. They needed and, in fact, relied on gracious other people who were traveling through, like David, to give them de facto protection from less scrupulous people. And it was a given, part and parcel of that, that the individual to whom you were giving that protection to his flocks would show their appreciation by helping you out if need be. Otherwise, they would be destitute if they didn't receive such help. So understand that David is not asking for a payment or demanding payment per se, but just some help in the way of enabling he and his men to, in a sense, continue keep protecting your men by bringing us some food and show us your appreciation for the good work on your behalf. It's not an internet scam. It's not out of the ordinary. It's the way that business was done in the day. So what is Nabal's problem? Well, we already know. Nabal is acting Nabally. So they wait for Nabal's generous response. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, David? David? Who's David? And who's the son of Jesse? And Nabal adds Barb to the Barb comments already. There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Okay, you know, uh, when people are in dire straits, they sometimes shoot off, at, uh, shoot off at the mouth and they don't realize the fullness of what they're saying. Nabal is in his characteristic sour way strutting his stuff to the point of abject stupidity. He is insulting David left and right. He's telling his servants, uh, you know, yeah, David, so uh, you're part of David's gang. Big deal. You know what? It's happening today all over the place. Servants are departing from their masters as David departed from Saul. So again, who's David? He's that son of Jesse. Pugh, I spit on him. His intent seems to be, and it is, a cocky insult Shouting about this fad and it's not common, it's not uncommon for people to do what David did. So again, he's nothing special. There's nothing to this. Where it turns ironic and Nabal not even realizing the fullness of what he has said is that in just a moment, Nabal's own servants are going to do exactly what he said and break away from him. Pride? goes before a fall, writes Solomon in the Proverbs. So Nabal arrogantly disses David's words through his messengers, continuing, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origins I don't know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and they told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Now, Barbara and I lived in the South, in the deep South, in the good old Bible Belt deep South, for quite a few years. And there's an expression that you would hear that's much more commonplace down there than up here. But I think uh, probably a good few of you have heard this, and it's talking about that individual who just needs kind of a supernatural wake-up call, something special, and they often say, yeah, honey, that person needs a come-to-Jesus moment. And everybody knows what they mean down in the Bible Belt. Well, that would be anachronistic if we were to use it here in this context. A what? It would be anachronistic, meaning it wouldn't fit the time because Jesus hasn't come yet. So it wouldn't be a good use of the phrase. However, we could rightly say that what Nabal needs is a come-to-David moment. And you'll see why I want you to remember that and hold that thought till the very end. Continuing, verse 14. One of the young men who was one of Nabal's servants breaking away now told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, and all the time we were with them tending the sheep." Now, therefore, no one consider what you should do, for harm is plotted against our master Nabal and against all his household. And, as I mentioned earlier, he is such a worthless man that no one can talk to him, or no one can speak to him. So this idiot stick husband with a death wish fades into the scene a bit, while now his beautiful, competent wife takes charge amazingly, graciously, to save Nabal's neck. Possibly to save her own as well, but certainly to save Nabal's neck. Verse 18. Then Abigail hurried, and she took 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five measures of roasted grain, and a 100 clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Wait, what? She's preparing dinner for 400 men. How do you do that in a hurried way? She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. I really would like to know what in the world Nabal was doing during this time that he didn't know that his wife was preparing a meal for 400 guys. How do you not know that, guys? (laughs) Maybe they had the newest Marvel release of Spider-Man video game, and Nabal was off in a cave somewhere, I don't know. Abigail has gone out to assuage the anger of the king, who is on his way to give Nabal a little bit of what for? Verse 20, it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. I found it interesting that verse 20 is in the moment, meaning it's in real time. It is being written down basically in the moment that Abigail is doing all of this, whereas verse 21 and 22 is written as a past tense, something that's already transpired previous to this, not at this moment where Abigail is now waiting. So why? Maybe David's past tense vow in verses 21 and 22 is brought up in the moment at this present time because the Lord wants us to know how intense and how precarious the situation is into which Abigail is inserting herself. It also tells us that David wasn't coming on a fact-finding mission. David wasn't in a good mood now. He wasn't thinking, gosh you know, I can't imagine somebody dissing me like that after all we've done for him. Perhaps it's been misunderstood. Let's go talk to him face to face and get things straightened out. Oh, no. David is determined he is coming to seek vengeance and he makes a very strong vow to that effect. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Can you imagine the boldness of this woman. First, as a woman in this culture and day, to go on out, to make the travels, to go before David, who I'm not positive of what her knowledge is of who David will be, although in the text we will see that she makes some things that seem like she may understand that he will one day be king, but whether that's because she knows about him already being anointed as king, or whether she just sees what an honorable man of integrity that he is, I'm not certain, but either way she falls down before him, which uh, which is the, the lowest sign of submission and humility, because at that moment, of course, her life is on the line. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is his game. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as naval Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who are accompanied who, young men who accompany my Lord, please forgive the transgression of your maid servant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Here you go. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord God, with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And there is silence. The nervous wait until David speaks. What's he thinking? Is he buying it? Am I about to die here? Does he understand what a knucklehead my husband is? And without sense, verse 32, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. A big sigh comes out of Abigail as well as those who were with her. Then Abigail came to Nabal. And behold... (laughs) He was holding a feast in his party. It's time to party. Like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So he did not tell him anything. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. Scholars believe that David had a stroke with complete paralysis, hence the expression, because we know that he didn't have a heart attack because he died 10 days later after he became as a stone. Now, let me take us back. Remember that I mentioned the person needing the come to Jesus moment and Nabal needing a come to David moment. And I contend that they are one and the same. And that is not an argument by assertion, as you will see. We go centuries later, thousands Of years later. Well, centuries later. Peter is speaking in the third chapter of Acts, and it is the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days... It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter is citing from Deuteronomy chapter 18 arguing that real faith and real belief in Moses will lead one to belief inextricably has to lead one to belief in Jesus the Messiah. And believe Belief in the Messiah is a contiguous pathway from belief in Moses. A stretch? Not in the least. The Scriptures interpret Scripture. Jesus, again, John chapter 5, verse 46. If you have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me speaking to the religious ne'er-do-wells, the Pharisees. In verse 25, Peter expressly connects the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 22, saying, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he is connecting that inextricably with one's commitment to the love of the Savior, the capstone of the gospel in the Old Testament. And there again, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus now after the, after the resurrection, but yet before the ascension. And he's with the disciples who don't know who he is. And it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. God from before the foundations of the world already knew what the fate of the new universe that he was bringing into existence was going to be in of our stone hearts and that there would be nobody who searches after God. No one who seeks for God of his own free choosing or of his own inclination, I should say, but only by the grace of God in his Holy spirit, drawing man to himself. Does anybody come? And the good news begins in the garden of Eden when the Father pronounces the curse on Satan, the serpent, and the promise of the one who is coming, who would be bruised on his heel by the devil, but whom that one would bruise on the head, namely Jesus. Ignore the Old Testament. Don't need the Old Testament. Don't need the laws of God today. Hogwash. What a sacrilege and what a disservice we do to the Lord God Almighty, but what a disservice we do to ourselves and our faith and our theology in forgetting about the Old Testament. Let us not make such a mistake to the glory of his name. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, you are Mind bogglingly amazing. Thank you that we cannot wrap our heads around the greatness of who you are. We cannot plumb the depths of your complexity, of your genius. Father, why you ever determined To call any of us to Yourself is beyond me. But thanks be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, that You have done so. Father, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, any who do not know You today, bring them compellingly to Your throne room of grace lest they die a Christless eternity in hell. In Jesus' name, amen.